six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to a public affair. My name is Nadal Makashi, and I'll be your host for the hour. At Sijanora is off this week. Our pre midterm coverage continues here at WORT with less than a month left before the midterms. Lots of things are happening in Wisconsin. We are a 50 50 state, which means in certain races up and down the ballot, Republicans and Democrats both have a chance of recapturing seats in our gubernatorial, congressional, and legislative races. These elections have broad implications, as many important policy questions are up this cycle. Issues like reproductive health, inflation, public safety, and many others are top of mind for the people of Wisconsin. And with less than 30 days left, there's one topic that's been discussed a lot recently, student loan forgiveness. So today, we are going to talk about the political impact of the Biden administration's historic move on federal student loan debt cancellation, how it's been received in Wisconsin, and what it will mean for turnout in November. My guest for the hour is Scott Ross. Scott Ross has worked as a Democratic Senior Communications Director and Research Strategist for numerous statewide and federal campaigns and elected officials. Over a dozen years as Executive Director at One Wisconsin Now, the former journalist led the organization to becoming Wisconsin's most often quoted progressive advocacy org, appearing in more than 15,000 media stories at the state and national levels. Among his favorite moments, when Stephen Colbert made fun of Scott Walker for nine minutes based on the thank you again and Molotov letter that he uncovered in the Scott Walker John Doe 1 documents. After leaving one Wisconsin, Scott was the Senate Democratic appointee to the Wisconsin Ethics Commission. Thanks so much for being here, Scott. Well, Nada, thank you so much for having me. It's been a while since I've been on WORT, and I am thrilled and honored to be back and a uh, huge fan. I, uh, I got rid of Sirius. I've been <laughs> away in Spain for a couple months, and I decided to actually for a longer, longer than that, and I decided to finally disgorge myself of Sirius, and now I have two stations that are set in my presets for my radio in my <laughs> car, and WORT is one of those two. So That's awesome. high praise indeed from my driving. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Well, first refresh our memories a bit, or perhaps, you know, uh, teach us as people who are a little bit too young okay. to remember, but what was the thank you again in Molotov's letter? I've been dying to know. <laughs> so, um, as you may remember, Scott Walker had not one, but two John Doe investigations uh, against him for corruption in public office, including utilizing taxpayer resources in order to operate campaign something that's you know mm. directly verboten um and uh, we had a couple of legislative legislators go to prison for it or jail for it for a couple you know for about 15 years or so ago so anyhow so as part of the john doe uh the first john doe uh, a bunch of documents that had been subpoenaed from scott walker and uh were, were um were made public mm. um and at One Wisconsin Now, we were a research and communications organization. We like to find out about issues and then comment on issues, specifically when the people who were commenting on those issues were doing bad things mm-hmm. that we disliked. We would criticize those for the, them for those actions. And mm-hmm. when they were doing things that were good, we would praise them for those actions. And you're going to be shocked to know that there were very few things, and I, in fact, can't think of many, where we actually praised the work of Scott Walker mm-hmm. because he was corrupt as the day is long. Can't imagine. And I was actually you know like a lot of the you know a lot of the work we had a wonderful team at one wisconsin now both our employees and our own turns um and we were able to you know we would own turns yes (laughs) um the uh the and the our own turns you know usually we're going through a lot of the when you have these big document dumps you know and I happened to, you know be actually doing my job i don't know i hadn't passed out or something for the Mm -hmm. day i was conscious and uh I was going through this one and I found this letter that had been written to Franklin Gimbel, who was a, uh, a Jewish lawyer over in Milwaukee and actually had been the lawyer for one of the people in Scott, who Scott Walker, one of Scott Walker's staffers who was caught up in this John Doe. And at the bottom of it, I just happened to notice that he said this was, you know, it was, a, it was you know, it was during it was during Hanukkah and it said at the bottom thank you again in Molotov, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, of course, thank you again in Mazel Tov. <laughs> and uh, 
I, uh, as I would do fairly regularly when I found out fun stuff or in, in, you know, irritating stuff or hypocritical stuff or enraging stuff or mm -hmm. corruption stuff or just stuff. I would uh, try and pitch somebody in the in the in the in the press, mm. either the Capitol Press Corps or anybody around the state. And I happened to uh, I happened to uh, pitch it to someone and they declined. Mm. But one of the reporters nearby had heard my pitch and a couple months later asked me about that again mm -hmm. because she was working on a story about something else. And I was like, yeah, here you go. Here's the information. Here's the letter. And she wrote a story on it. And it was it was within a little story, you know, a larger yeah. story about how politicians, um, how politicians uh, celebrate the holidays to their constituents. Mm -hmm. Like, what do people do? And she dropped in. There was Jesse O'Poyne from the Cap Times. And she put that in there and a quote from me. And I uh, I'm sitting in bed like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe the next week. I think this was this story came out. Maybe I, I want to say over, the you know, towards the end of the week. The next week I'm laying in bed and I'm watching the old Colbert rapport <laughs> on the daily show. And all of a sudden the picture of the cap times logo comes up and he does an eight minute segment oh, on this. Wow. That was hilarious. Wow. Like just the mate, you know, the different phrases that he was using that Scott Walker could have bungled and <laughs> stuff. I mean, you know, it was just, it was just hysterical eight minutes long. And I was like, I, shrieked profanities <laughs> in joy because I could not believe this actually happened because, you know, Colbert is like the man, right? Wow, he is. And so, yeah, and so uh, I actually, that's how I found out my mother watched Colbert because I immediately called her and I was like, <laughs> oh my God, mom, da, da, da. And she's like, um, Scott, you remember your, because she lived on the East Coast. Yeah. So she's like, you know, it's an hour later here. And I was like, oh my God, I'm sorry. I was like, I just wanted to tell you. So there's this show, it's Colbert. And then he did the thing, and yeah. it did the thing about the thing I found and it made fun of Scott Walker. <laughs> and she's like, I'm going to watch it tomorrow because I DVR the Colbert Report. So oh, that wow. was how I found out that my mom, you know, was a Colbert fan. So yeah. that was kind of cool. Oh, that's so that iconic. is the thank you Molotov story. And the best part of it is, is that people still tweet at Walker every time around Hanukkah or any time he says anything remotely, no you know, way. that in, that, you know, either uh, either invokes Judaism or, you know, like when he's sucking up to Sheldon Adelson or, or Adelson or whatever. Anytime you can see, find at least three to five tweets that say thank you again in <laughs> Molotov. And so I feel like I put something that will be in Scott Walker's obituary, <laughs> you know, and I'm if very proud it. of that. So <laughs> well, there that's, you go. that's something to be to be proud of. I'm going to have to Google that <laughs> clip and watch it. But speaking of your brilliant work uh, with One Wisconsin Now, you've done a lot of research and advocacy on student loan forgiveness over the years. So I was hoping we could start off with your reaction to Biden's student debt cancellation decision. Sure, sure. Um, I thought it was a great move. I mean, the, the fact is, is that, you know, student loan debt is is the is it literally is the third rail of uh, 21st century economic politics, because, you know, whether it's going to college, mm -hmm. whether it's going to graduate school, whether it's going to technical college, whether it's going to retool as you try and deal with an ever changing, you know, uh, owner, owner, corporate uh, 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 dominated market. If you had, if you have to get training and education, the the re, the result of that shouldn't be a multiple decade debt sentence. Mm -hmm. Like we cannot have a middle class if the price to get in that middle class is decades of student loan debt. And you know, I just I like I use my own experience. Okay, mm -hmm. now I granted I grew up in a middle class family in Pennsylvania. My dad was a steelworker. My mom was a public school teacher. So when steel became the first American industry that was outsourced overseas. You know, it was like a nuclear bomb dropped in our neighbor, in our community, the mm -hmm. entire Pittsburgh community where I grew up. Like steel was the thing that gave you middle class jobs. Everybody in my neighborhood had somebody who worked for the mill. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a good, you know, people worked hard. They took showers before they came home. You know, they wore steel toed boots, whatever. And then that was all gone immediately, just all gone. And, you know, my family was more fortunate than both both because my mom was a teacher and my dad, you know, was able to get, you know, he, he was able to be laid off in three different mills, mm -hmm. you know, and there were some people who never recovered. And I remember when my, you know, the, the morning after Trump won the presidency, my dad texted me and was like, what the hell happened? Mm -hmm. And I actually called him. I was like, well, it happened because like a lot of those guys that, you know, 
the mill workers that used to come to our house or whatever, like they never got good jobs again, you know? And like, as a result, you know, that coupled with like racism from where I'm at, Southwestern Pennsylvania is racist as the day is long, you know, I mean, Pittsburgh and Milwaukee, like Pittsburgh and Milwaukee, identical kind of cities. Mm -hmm. They are identical in every way, shape and form, except for like, I think in Milwaukee, if you were to sum up the attitude with one word, it'd be like, yeah, in Pittsburgh, it's like, nah. (laughs) So, um, you know, that's the sort of economics of it or, you know, I, I, I say this, I'm sorry, my anecdote is going on far too long, but you know, I went to the University of Pittsburgh, the first university west of the Allegheny Mountains, public university. It happens to have the second highest public school tuition in America because mm. it's like a state related university, both that and Penn State, which are in Pennsylvania. They get some of their money from the state, mm-hmm. you know, but, the you know, a very small percentage. So the tuition is really high, even though, like, you know, I mean, with all due respect to, you know, me as a pit grad, Carnegie Mellon's right up the street and they used to refer to us as grade 13 for a reason. Mm. But I got out of, you know, I got out of college and did some grad school and I ended up with like, you know, $65,000 of debt at the Mm -hmm. age of like 26, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, so for me, it seemed to me that it didn't necessarily help that getting that training, getting that education gives you this multiple decade Mm -hmm. debt sentence because like, we did we so we started doing research on 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 student debt like in I want to say 2009 2010 mm-hmm. you know um and the first thing I did was I I you know I, I sort of started surveying people about like just anecdotally like so if you didn't have if you had student debt like what are the things you're not doing and the two things were not buying home not buying ca- new cars mm-hmm. you know and new cars and homes are the economic drivers of this economy you know, they have been forever and we ended up doing this massive survey, like a scientific survey. We got a guy who was, who was an auditor who worked in, in government audits to like help design it and everything. And we surveyed like, you know, thousands of people and had them fill out and, you know, all that sort of thing. And what we found is that if you had a student loan debt, you are twice as likely to have a used car as opposed to a new car. Wow. And you're twice as likely to rent or live with your parents than you are to have that embodiment of the middle class embodiment of America, a home of your own. Mm. And so we, you know, you think about the economic impact. So for decades and decades and decades, our economy was driven by people being able to make those two, two middle-class purchases, homes and new cars. You take those away, you know, think about what you're doing to the community. Like if people are, you know, if people aren't owning their own homes, if they're not able to buy new cars, the ripple effects of all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first way we went at it because like people, listen, when we first started doing student loan debt, I would get the old saying, well, when I went to college, I worked. I'm like, I worked, you know, 60 hours at the newspaper and I was a janitor and scrubbed toilets. So like people, everybody with student loan debt works, Mm. but the stratification and the way it's happened now is basically you are, you either have student debt or your parents are rich. Hmm. Like there is that thing that just separates it because the cost of higher education is just out of control for a whole bunch of reasons. Some because of Democrats, some because of Republicans and some because they came together to screw us all over. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the, you know, so that's, that's, you know, and, and, and I just think that it's also getting worse as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I, there's, there's, there's a video of me, like I, I did the Melissa Harris Perry show back in 2013. And I said like three things we have to think about student debt. Again, this is 2013, like, and student debt at that point had just gone over $1 trillion. Hmm. Okay. So there were like 35 million borrowers who had $1 trillion of student debt in 2013. And it's like, you know, what, basically what are the economic, you know, is public education going to remain a public good? You know, mm-hmm. what are the economic implications if we do nothing? And what happens if we do nothing is that student debt is going to go from one trillion to two trillion by the end of the decade. And we're not far off. I mean, it's 2022, but we're not far off from it being a two trillion dollar crisis. And so the thing that's that's most bothersome about this is, you know, I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I live over I live over by where the jets are becoming F-35, so I had to shut my window on this beautiful 70-degree day because you won't be able to hear me once they start flying over. But, you know, student loan borrowers 
are hardworking and they play by the rules. They took on the responsibility of financing their higher education. They were not asking for handouts. They were not asking for charity. They were simply asking to be treated fairly in a system that treats them unfairly. And we tried for years and years and years to, for instance, get the Republicans to agree to allow you to refinance your student loan like you can a mortgage. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer, right, Nada? Yeah. Like, if you can, you know, the government lends out money to corporations at less than 1% interest. Why is somebody paying 11 and a half or 12% or like I paid 7.75%, you know, uh, interest for a student loan, for God's sakes. Yeah. And allowing us to refinance our student loans like you can a mortgage was not going to cost one net dime. It just was that the government was going to steal less from student loan bars, the 45 million of us now. And every single time we tried to do that for six years in the state legislature in Wisconsin, every single Democratic legislator, senators and assembly people supported the state refinancing plan, the higher ed, lower debt plan, mm. every single time. Every single Republican opposed it. Every single time we tried to bring it to the floor while the, you know, as the Republicans control the legislature under the rigged maps, they voted it down every single time. You know, mm. they tried to pass it in Congress. Senator Baldwin was a big proponent of it. Mark Pocan, Representative Mark Pocan, was the author of the first federal student loan right, refinancing mm. bill with Kristen Gillibrand. Elizabeth Warren was working hard on this. Hell, people give Ron Kind a bad rap. He was a leader on this. Like he cared that much about it because he understood the unfairness of it and it didn't make good economic sense. Mm -hmm. And every single time the Republicans stopped, stopped Democrats from doing it. Every single time. Yeah. So well, now Biden's like, you know what? We're just going to forgive some loans. And the Republicans are having a pants pee over it. Yeah. And I mean, the operative word in that is is some loans. So it's been criticized on the left at left as not being you know, going far enough, but rather a first step. What do you make of arguments that Biden should have forgiven all student loans? Um, I think that, you know, I'm just going to say that, like, from the time when we first started, like, as I said earlier, from the time when we first started talking about the issue, mm -hmm. you know, which was in, like, again, I think the first thing I ever wrote about it was in 2008, but, like, 2009, 2010. So we're talking about, like, 12, 13 years mm -hmm. ago. 12, 13 years ago, you know, they were still saying, well, when I went to college, I worked for a living. You know, mm -hmm. because the issue is so the issue has to have a there has to be some kind of education to it. A cultural and shift. Yeah. A, yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. That's right. And you have to meet people where there are if you want them to support what you're talking about. And that was why we started with the with the refinancing, because it seemed like a no. And, and, you know, we did polling on it and stuff. And. 89% of people supported the idea that you should be able to refinance your student loan like you can a mortgage. And it costs no net, it was no net cost to, to, to the government, either federal or state, depending on where, mm -hmm. where we did it. And so we met people there. So yes, would I love, would I have loved Biden to be like, you know what, you want to do this? I'm going to forgive, you know, <laughs> I'm going to forgive like $1.2 trillion mm -hmm. of federal student loan debt. I totally would have loved that. I just don't, you know, I just didn't see that was ever going to happen with Biden. I mean, Biden's not that kind of guy. I mean, he is, a, you know, he, you know, went to Washington, D.C. in 1972, right, as a senator. And so, like, that sort of, ra because I, I don't want to say radical, that's not the right word. <laughs> it's, but it's a stretch, you know, it, it would okay. be a stretch, like, but I'd support, I for sure would support it, you know, I, I like the idea of saying 50,000, I'm willing to, I'm, you know, and again, like, I made my last student loan payment on my 44th birthday, you know, and it, it you know, so after 26 years of having debt. So like, I'm one of those people who like doesn't have debt anymore and thoroughly 100% supports the forgiving of as much mm. student loan debt as we can stop forgiving. My mother and father both died of cancer. And I don't think that like, we should like not have cancer cures and try and cure mm -hmm. it. You know, like I'm going to be thrilled when we have a cure for cancer because families won't have to go through what my family went through, you know? Yeah. And like, I feel the same way with student debt. Like just because I had student debt doesn't mean we shouldn't forgive student debt. And anybody who says that is a get the beeper ready um, is a blank, you know, like that's just ridiculous, you know, because again, it's going to drive the American economy. This is, and that was what we tried to argue when they were doing that, when, when President Obama was doing the, you know, Recovery Act stuff then, you know, back in 2009, we were arguing, if you want to have a jolt for the e economy, if you want stimulus, give people who are educated, trained, out in the workforce, trying to make it happen, who have education debt, give them a break 
on it. So they're not paying six or $700 mm-hmm. a month. Just tell me how somebody paying six or $700 a month because they went to technical college. Tell me how that helps the economy. Mm-hmm. I will wait for your answer, Nada. That is Scott Ross. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to A Public Affair here on WRT in Madison. Uh, my name is Nadal Makashi, and this hour we're talking about student loan uh, relief. If you have any questions for Scott, if you disagree with him or agree with him, uh, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We are happy to take your question. Well, in actually very recent news, I think it was yesterday, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett denied Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty bid to block Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Barrett, who I think she handles emergency requests from Wisconsin, acted on her own without referring the case to the full court or seeking a response from the government. That hit me as unusual because of who she is. Uh, Did it take you by surprise? Yeah, it it did. It actually did. And, um, you know, let's not I I, I am unable to be on the radio without saying this since you invoked Amy Coney Barrett's (laughs) name. You know, let us not forget that Amy Coney Barrett got her seat on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals because um, Republicans like Ron Johnson refused to allow Obama to fill that seat, which Mm -hmm. opened up in 2016. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just start right there with that, because I know that the Republicans are always accusing Democrats of supporting court packing, Mm -hmm. you know, and let me just say that it's very, you know, on the Seventh Circuit in particular, you know, Ron Johnson allowed a vacancy for a seat that is actually a Wisconsin seat on the court to be vacant for 3,046 days, a seat that opened up in 2010, eventually was filled by Donald Trump in 2017. Wow. So tell me how that is, in, how that, you know, and, and that's the kind of stuff, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I think uh, Democrats have to be better at. And that is articulating into the media the specific problems that Republicans are causing. And this is one of them. But anyhow, yeah, it was shocking that Amy Coney Barrett did that. But I thought it was, you know, the thing that was interesting to me is it showed you that the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, when they're not before the lapdog Republican Wisconsin Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. which, you know, includes four Republicans, one of whom was, you know, was Rick Essenberg, the head of Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, Rebecca Bradley, that homophobe. She was his, he was her mentor. And he wrote letters to get her her appointments by Scott Walker to be on various courts, you know, and yet she never recuses a single case when she is when Will comes before them. And Will has literally been 100 percent ruled in favor by Rebecca Bradley, the entirety of her service on the Supreme Court. So I was surprised, you know, so I was surprised that the federal, but again, it was the third, I think it was the third court, the third federal court, mm-hmm. all can, all Republicans, you know, Griesbach who originally ruled against who threw out Will's claim a few weeks ago because of, uh, because of standing. He said that they, they're the Brown County taxpayers didn't have standing and they didn't like, I'm not even a lawyer. And I knew that that was going to get thrown out. Um, and then he appealed to the seventh and they said no way. And then he went to the Supreme court and they said no way because of Amy Coney Barrett. And so I love the fact that, you know, this, you know, hateful, racist, transphobic law firm, which exists to advance Republican ideals and, you know, and support Republicans and attack Democrats has uh, is uh, got its knuckles wrapped by, you know, one of the biggest partisans in the United States of America, Amy Coney Barrett. So, yay. So let's all, you know, let's all say the one good thing we can all now we all can say we said something nice about Amy Coney Barrett. About, How about that? Yeah. Well, you tweeted recently that seeing how Will exists to blow racist dog whistles in courtrooms, this makes sense to me. When you were at OWN, uh, were lawsuits like this par for the course for them uh, regarding, I guess, anything that has to do with, um, you know, social justice issues or election issues uh, and people of color? Voting rights was at the top of mm. their attack. They're attacking. And let me just like, so let me just tell you a little bit about them so that, you know, so you're so that you're listening. I know that your listeners are more tuned in to politics Mm -hmm. and the intricacies and the inside baseball and all that sort of thing than a lot of radio stations are. But in case there's somebody who listen who doesn't really know exactly the history and I'll be able to like, you know, show my, you know, try and pretend like I know something. (laughs) Um, Will was a is a 501c3 law firm that was created by the Bradley Foundation. The Bradley Foundation is a $1 billion Republican slush fund run out of Milwaukee. And um, 
the head of the Bradley Foundation for years and years and years was a guy named Michael Greeby, who was the chair of Scott Walker's gubernatorial, uh, his, 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 um, his, his gubernatorial campaigns and his 71 day, haha, presidential run. And the Bradley Foundation exists to do three things, basically. One is for school privatization. They have been, the Bradley Foundation has financed science all over the country Mm. to say that public schools are terrible and we should do privatization vouchers, all that garbage. They are the propaganda arm of the school privatization cartel and movement. The second thing they do is attacking black people, particularly when it comes to voting rights Mm -hmm. and trying to restrict voting rights in manifest ways all over the country. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is Islamophobia. They have been a chief financier of the anti-Islamic movement, the Islamophobia movement in the United States of America. They are a trash bin, a garbage bin, you know, uh, and they just, you know, they, they they should be shunned. And if they weren't located in the city of like Milwaukee, if they were located here in Madison, I think they would be trashed a little bit more regularly. But Milwaukee, the cocktail circuit there apparently, you know, is a little too dilettante to like do things like call racists racist sometimes. Mm. But that's just me. But Will was an, a creation. They, they they created Will after Jim, you know, I think it was like, it was right after Jim, was it right after or before? It was like right around the end of Jim Doyle's term. And they created it so that they could sue on behalf of Republican causes mm. because Republicans just had the sweep of the legislature and the governorship. And they wanted to maximize some of, you know, and they also had just won the Supreme Court because Mike Gableman in 2008 yeah. ran at that time the most racist ad in the history of Wisconsin campaigns against Lewis Butler, who's the first and continues to be only black Supreme court justice that Wisconsin has ever had. He was appointed by Jim Doyle and lost the election by like 10,000 votes in 10,000 votes in 2008. And I always feel good because we screamed about Mike Gable when we showed, you know, how he was, how he was corrupt. We showed that he he was making fundraising calls from his offices for political campaigns, all those sorts of verboten things. And uh, so, so like him coming back into, into the news Mm -hmm. has been like PTSD for me, you know, because I hated that guy. I thought he was corrupt. It made me sick to my stomach that he was a Supreme court justice and will was created after they gained control of the Supreme court because they knew that they could just do anything at that point. And it was going to, it was going to fly past the Republican controlled Supreme court. And Will basically, Bradley started by giving them $500,000 a year for like the first like at least five years, Mm -hmm. which was basically their only funding. That was a bigger, that was bigger than my entire budget at One Wisconsin Now. You know, like Bradley just wrote them a check for what was more than my entire budget. And um, they just consistently, consistently sued in order to attack voting rights over and over and over again. Mm And I would say, again, going back to Bradley, I think that they I think the Bradley Foundation now at this point has probably financed some they they financed about seven million dollars um, of, of uh, or maybe that's I'm trying to think it's like. I think about seven million dollars has gone into uh, has gone into uh, into uh, what they've what they what they financed. Oh, wow. So um, I. I I might be I'm, I might be I might be adding that wrong. I'm going to tweet what the actual numbers are because <laughs> when I get through, because I'm just having a little bit of I'm having a little bit of uh, a little bit of problem remembering the, di- the different numbers because there's just so many numbers. So many um, yeah. It was I'm sorry. I, I'm correct. It's seven million dollars that Bradley has gotten given to the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty between 2020 and 20 and 2011. So wow. I've corrected myself. Sorry for that. Sorry to your listeners for that error. Um, and that stumbling, but again, they, you know, they were huge lawsuits against the John Doe investigations of Walker. They did lawsuits against Obamacare. They sued to undo our campaign finance limits. They sued on behalf of act 10. They sued on behalf of Walker's power grab. They've threatened political opponents. They've protected private schools from uh, scrutiny and they've, you know, defended both, voter suppression, as I talked about, and the Hobby Lobby decision. So mm-hmm. that's what they did, you know, I, I mean, and, and again, this goes back like only like, you know, this goes back like seven years they were doing that. Since then, they've become national players, like the student loan lawsuit, like the attacks. I mean, 
let's remember the, the transphobic mm-hmm. attacks that they have had, and they caused that violence in the Kiel School District. Mm-hmm. Essenberg and his clavern over at Will have done that. And um, the uh, trying to prevent farmer, black farmers from getting aid, you know, how they were, how Biden was trying to rectify long and established, you know, um, long and established discrepancies, racism that prevented black farmers from mm-hmm. being able to get the same kind of aid that white farmers have that was, you know, brilliantly uh, uh, documented in the 1619 Project. Mm-hmm. You know, they sued to stop that. They sued to stop aid that was specifically going to go to black entrepreneurs and stuff. You know, again, I, I'm i the white guy here saying, you mm-hmm. know, but let me just, you know, like the ridiculous way in which the government has been used to thwart the economic viability and power of a black community. You know, Biden at least was trying to rectify some of that. You know, Democrats have should have been doing that for a long, long time, but Biden was trying to do some of that. Yeah. And unfortunately, like Will was able to stop, stop that with their lawsuit. So they're garbage. I mean, they are garbage and it makes me sick to my stomach that our side is allowing the, the the progressive side is allowing their stuff, for instance, to go into the newspaper on on you know you never see democratic pushback in stories about the Wisconsin Institute for Law and yeah. Liberty. There was during some of the voting stuff, but by and large, like no, and like that was something when I was at One Wisconsin now, not to pat myself on the back too much, <laughs> but you know, we went after Will mm-hmm. and we wouldn't allow Will to have stories without calling reporters saying, why is there no comment from Democrats in there? Here's a lawyer who can do it. Here's a legal person from my staff who does it. And I don't see that aggressive going after in, in the media, you know, and the fact is that old people who are most likely to be voters get their news from newspapers and TV. It still is a fact. So I, I, I think, you know, one thing we should be is more aggressive progress as progressives in getting those things. So. Yeah, well, Michael G. is on the line. He has a question about the Foxconn project. Welcome, Michael. Yeah, hello. Um, yes, I wanted to ask about what is the status of the uh, Foxconn uh, boondoggle, and specifically what is going on there now? Are they actually producing anything, or just what the heck is going on there? And specifically, I have a question about someone that, uh, investigative journalists have discovered about a gentleman named Claude Lois, who is the project manager uh, of the Foxconn uh, boondoggle. Uh, purportedly, he earns over $300,000 a year, but nobody, none of these investigative reporters or anyone has ever been able to find any kind of job description or any information as to just what it is that uh, this guy is doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Just curious as to know if you have any uh, insight on all these things. And I can just take my answers off the air. And thanks for an interesting program. Take care, everyone. Thanks, Michael. Scott? Um, Well, Michael, thank you for your call. Yeah, the Foxconn, I mean, I... (laughs) The only thing that they manufacture at the Foxconn plant is excuses. That's what I would say. <laughs> um, and I get, and I'm guessing that since we, you know, since Michael, you know, called in about Foxconn and you and I, and he both have used the word Foxconn, that somehow taxpayers are getting rooked for like 50 bucks. Cause it just <laughs> feels like, you know, there's just absolutely nothing good coming out of that. Now I would say this is that, you know, governor Evers got stuck with this, you know, garbage sandwich and is trying to you know figure out ways to make it work in terms of like not just handing out incentives because foxconn you know wrote something on a cocktail napkin like they did with scott walker Mm. but the foxconn you know the foxconn boondoggle continues and we have invested like what a billion dollars in infrastructure down in mount pleasant area you know um and and to to no end And, and the worst part about the fox here's the worst thing about the foxconn thing is it's going to, if we ever have an actual real opportunity to bring a really big business here and make an international partnership with a new manufacturer, that it's going to, you know, it's going to cloud whether or not we're going to be willing to do that because of the resources that have been wasted, literally set on fire with Foxconn. Now, to what uh, Michael was talking about regarding Claude Lois, yeah. I think there there was a report that was talking about how Claude Lois was getting $28,000 a month 
he's a project manager, project manager who was hired to oversee Foxconn and was billing taxpayers. There was a story from like December, December 2021, where he was billing top taxpayers for 40 hours a week, but no idea what was being done. You know, I mean, we've all seen this. We've all seen the stories about like, you know, the, the, the some of the papers have done that talk about people just sitting around and doing nothing, you know, in Foxconn because they want to be able to get like the tax breaks. So they have to employ so many different people and they, and they want to get, you know, they need to just have that many people on so they can get the, get the amount the bare level for tax breaks. Now, let me just say this about Foxconn. Okay. One, everybody who talked about Foxconn from the progressive side and said that it was nonsense was right about every single mm-hmm. aspect of it. And every Republican who said it was going to do good was absolutely wrong about every single aspect of it. And yet these same Republicans are allowed to comment in the press and have their comments put without a no, without a single, and I, on a range of economic issues, whether it's taxation, public spending, corrections, whatever it is, I think that you should be branded with a scarlet F if you supported Foxconn. And anytime you're talked about in the press, it should say, you know, Robin Voss, comma, who led the effort to bring Fox, the failed Foxconn project to Wisconsin, comma, said da 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 Because, like, they were just so absolutely and completely and totally wrong. And I remember Owen got politifacted twice in a week over Foxconn because... You know, the powers that be at the Journal Sentinel in southwestern Wisconsin wanted the Foxconn project to work because they saw dollar signs for economic development. They believed Scott Walker and they were wrong. And that's not to say the journalism in those papers has been really, really good. Like the Capitol reporters who have reported on Foxconn did an amazingly good job. But the fact is, is that Foxconn, the people who, who said it was bad were right. People who said it was right were bad and you know, I got politifacted twice on it and got half truths by using reporting that the journal Sentinel did. And I was cheesed about that. <laughs> well, if you're tuning in, that is Scott Ross. You're listening to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM. Uh, you can join us, join the conversation for the last 15 minutes that we have by calling us at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet at us at WORT Talk or at W... Uh, or at Scott Ross, Wisconsin. Is that your handle, Scott? Ross across WI. There it is. That was it. That was the handle that I started when I, uh, that was the name of my committee when I ran for secretary of state back in 2006. Oh yeah. We'll talk about that at the end. We have a little beef about uh, the, the importance of the secretary of state office. But before that, uh, (laughs) Eric is on the line and wants to talk about the attorney general race. And uh, you know, Eric, what's your, what's your take? Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. I, you know, I just feel like there hasn't been a lot of attention on the race. It's mostly been about Evers and Barnes and stuff. And, you know, I, I've seen Eric Tony going around the state and talking about state prosecutors and prosecutors from other counties going places. I don't even know if that's constitutional, but I'm not hearing a lot from you liberals on you know, whether that's a good idea or not. And so I, I don't know. What do you think about Eric Coney? I mean, he's got the look, I think, but I don't, do you think he's real? Thanks, Eric. Scott? All right, so uh, cards on table. Like, let me, I, you know, I would like to whatever. Um, I helped get Josh, our current attorney general, Josh Call. I helped get his mom elected the first woman attorney general back in 2002, Peg Lautenschlager, who's no longer with us. So I'm a big fan. I've known Josh for a long, long, long time. And uh, what I would say is this, Eric Tony is a clown. Like everything he says is not based in fact, or it's a violation of the constitution. Absolutely, it is unconstitutional for one district attorney to go into another district, another county and try and prosecute someone. You know, I, uh, I you know, and another thing, I saw the thing the other day where uh, uh, Eric Tony was out doing a press conference where he was yapping about a thousand positions not being filled or some kind of whatever, thousand cases. And literally, as soon as the press asked him about it, he's like, humana, 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 humana. <laughs> I'm not sure where it is. You know, I'm not sure where the cases are exactly, but I know that they're there. You know, that's a clown. You know, when you go into the courtroom, you have to, you have to, uh, 
you have to uh, present your evidence and you're going to get called out if you don't. And I'll say this, like, listen, you know, I know that Josh Call is up for a fight, you know, because he has been a prosecutor and a fighter and he was our lawyer to restore voting rights in the state of Wisconsin. You know, when Scott Walker and the Republicans restricted early voting in the state of Wisconsin, it was Josh Call who stood there and represented one Wisconsin now and got early voting restored in the state of Wisconsin. He's very proud to be a part of that. And uh, so when you say is, 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 is Josh Call up for the fight, I would quote the Karate Kid. Daniel LaRusso is going to fight. Daniel LaRusso is going to fight. So, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Thank you for that, Scott. Segwaying back to student loan forgiveness and, you know, connecting it with the November election. I haven't heard personally a lot of a lot of our major candidates up this November tie themselves to student loan forgiveness as strongly as I would have assumed they would. Is it a liability for them? Should Democrats be tying themselves as much as possible to Biden's wins uh, in order to get across the finish line this November? Well, I mean, you know, elections are about breaking off pieces and getting to 50% plus one. It's very simple. Like governance was supposed to be about bringing people together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is some dividing that goes on. Now, the fact is, is that, you know, there's like 20 million, there's 20 million potential student loan borrowers, including 715,000 in the state of Wisconsin, who could relieve, get benefit from this bill. I do not understand for the life of me why you wouldn't try and target those voters. You know, the people who are getting the student loan voters. It is malpractice not to be doing that, in my opinion. And I'll just say this, like, I know there's a lot of jerks in America and a lot of jerks in Wisconsin, and you're listening to one right now. But like, there are a few people that would be like, I'm going to go vote for the Democrat, you know, but then they hear that the Democrats support providing relief to student loan bars. And they're suddenly going to be like, well, I'm not mm -hmm. going to support them as a result of that. Like, it's just it's just. You know, and I've dealt with pollsters and on student debt. And like, there's so many DC pollsters who don't understand student debt. For one thing, like, you know, you hear people are like, oh, yeah, we're going to do a camp, we're going to do a, we're going to do a uh, turnout event about student debt. We're going to go on campus. People on campus don't understand student loan debt yet because they don't have it yet. I know when I was mm. in college, I didn't think about student debt because I, you know, like it was, it was at the high. So I think that, I think they're making a big mistake by not talking about, an economic issue that's going to put money in people's pockets and allow them to be fully invested in the American economy and full participates in the American economy. And if you have student loan debt, you are more likely to be a voter than any other demographic I can think of because you have education and training and that makes you more likely um, to be a participant in your community. It's as simple as that. And so not talking to these people is crazy. I mean, not a how much time, how many times have you heard Republicans who give tax breaks to like, you know, 400 gazillionaires say, we're putting money in the job creators pockets, you know, and mm -hmm. we Democrats can't talk about giving money to 20 million people yeah. who are going to go to the polls, who are literally going to go vote. I mean, that was the thing. Like one of the reasons we got into student loan debt is we wanted to find out what are the messages that could motivate student loan debtors to go to the polls, you know, because we thought they could be this incredible, important economic voting block, you know? And so, yeah, it's malpractice, you know? It is malpractice not to be not to be getting people out there about student debt. And I would challenge any pollster who says, like, our polling shows that you shouldn't do that, to come before me and show me your crosstabs and show me the way you ask those questions, because I bet you didn't do it correctly, because I know how big of a motivator student loan debt was for voters when we talked to 1,203 of them about this particular issue. Well, speaking of young voters and polls, the Marquette uh, University Law Poll has Ron Johnson uh, with a huge lead in the Wisconsin Senate race, specifically with young men. I think with likely voters, he's up 65% to 33% with men age 18 to 29. What do you make of this? How do you think um, student loan forgiveness factors in to turn out, uh, especially this November? I mean, I think a couple things. One, I mean, I was on a panel with uh, with the pollster, with Charles Franklin about this, and I asked him about that. And he said that, you know, the subset was only like 50 or 60 voters. So he's so that poll says that they're down, but it wasn't a really big universe for that breakdown of voters. You know what I'm saying? You get what I'm saying? Hmm. Like, 
it wasn't that many voters. So the, so the plus minus on it was like 20%, you know, 20 points, give or okay. take. You know what I mean? But I think that, you know, Democrats have to be doing everything they can to turn out young voters. You know, like whether the numbers are wh whatever the poll says, they should be maximizing the ability to talk about to talk to young voters. And I fear I fear putting all of your eggs in the abortion basket could be challenging. Interesting. Because I think, you know, as a Democrat, I've long you know, thought about there's a lot of all, there, there is no altruism in the in the in the voting booth, I believe. But I think a lot of things when it comes to the Democratic agenda require, because we have such a big coalition of so many diverse interests, it does require you to put yourself in somebody else's position a lot of times. I'm never going to have kids, you know, either as a father or as a, as a mother. And so like, but I believe in abortion rights. Hell yeah. You know, um, but I do think that there's, I think there's a lot of things that people are, a lot of challenges people are facing and we have to be cognizant and meeting a lot of those challenges and especially economic ones. And I absolutely think abortion is an economic issue. 100, 1000% is an economic issue, you know? And I think student loan debt is an economic issue for a whole variety of reasons, both the debtors and both what they bring to the economy and the people who utilize their services. We use, utilize the economics that they would be otherwise denied. So I, you know, so I think it's incredibly important to motivate young voters because again, like, especially if you're coming off, you know, where Democrats were ostensibly in control of the house in control of the Senate and control of the presidency. And you feel like a lot of stuff isn't getting done. You know, that's why you have to, you have to, you know, you don't want to, you don't want inaction or the perception of inaction to cause apathy in your voters, mm -hmm. you know? And that's why I think Democrats should be fighting on the issue of student debt because you can defend action. You can't defend inaction and pretending like you didn't do something that was done. I think is a, I think is a misfire. Again, I don't have, I'm not in the room, so I can't see what everybody, everybody's doing, but I know that I've followed student debt scientifically for like 15 years now. And I think that student debt is, is, is needs to be in this election. Um, and I saw that apparently the, the, one of the Biden operations is going to be having uh, web ads in three states, including Wisconsin, on the student debt thing. I didn't really like the ad, but I'm glad that they're doing something. Yeah, well, speaking of, you know, all of our eggs as Democrats in one bas basket and kind of a parallel complaint, do you agree with people who say that Democrats aren't hitting Republicans? I know you're doing a lot of work in the 3rd Congressional District with insurrectionist Derek Van Orden. Do you agree that Democrats aren't hitting Republicans enough on the insurrection in January 6th? Yes, I do. I agree with that 100%. I think that that was the what, you know, as far as a crime committed against the United States, I think that was the greatest crime committed against us in our 246 year history, because it was a direct threat to overturn the results of a democratically decided election, which is what this nation is supposedly founded upon. You know, we've been attacked before, but we've never been attacked the, in, in that way. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, reminding I think that reminding voters, you know, not only did the Republicans run this insurrection, Ron Johnson, Derek Van Orton, the support was there, but we won. We stopped them. Mm -hmm. And so let's stop them again and make sure it never happens again. That's the thing. It is a victory. It was a victory that our system held, you know, and that Democrats and some Republicans like came together and made sure that our system of democracy did not crumble before our eyes due to the terrorist insurrection. And it's a position of strength where we did this thing and we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. And we are going to hold those people who did it accountable, you know, and a lot of the things I think now, you know, like some of the other things, it's like, we're talking about defeats, you know, but, you know, we're in ugly times. You know, this has been the worst election. I mean, I've been sort of cognizant of elections since like maybe 1988. Mm -hmm. That was the first election I voted in. I got to vote for Mike Dukakis. Woohoo. Um, and like, this is the worst election I've ever been through. And I'm an outsider at this point. You know, I'm not sitting day to day, like trying to get people elected per se. Um, it's just terrible. And the, the, you know, and the biggest reason it's terrible is because just the disgusting, disgraceful, you know, racist ads that are being run in this state and around the country related to, you know, crime, specifically targeting Mandela Barnes and also targeting Tony Evers. And even like now, you know, <laughs> we had the caller, um, we had the caller about uh, Eric Tony. I mean, Eric Tony is attacking Josh Call for somebody 
not getting out of prison, who Josh Call didn't try to get out of prison, and who remains in prison to this day. I don't quite get that ad, but anyhow, um, yeah, that's I. You know, I I I I think that uh, I, I I like when people call people out for doing racist stuff, mm-hmm. and I'd like to see that. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, I'm I'm happy that some of that's going on. But again, back to your initial question was, are Democrats using the terrorist insurrection enough? I would say I don't think that they are. Hmm. But, you know, we're, you know, we still have time. Still time. This is my first midterm, by the way. It's been a little traumatic. (laughs) And I know I hear a lot of people say this is the worst election uh, or the most important election of their of their of our lifetime. Would you agree with that? I, I, I guess. I mean, you know, I want to write a book that's like, this is the most important, the title is the most important um, uh, election of our lifetime, but cross out most important and, you know, use, you know, a profanity, a gerund profanity and the word worst. Like this is the effing worst election of our lifetime because I really do believe it is. It's just horrendous. It's horrible. It is. You know, and the thing is we have good candidates. Like Tony Evers is a great governor. You know, Mandela Barnes is a great lieutenant governor and he would be a great senator. Josh Call is a great attorney general. And Brad Paff is a great public servant and advocate for rural Wisconsin and would be a great member of Congress. And they're running against like the worst. Hmm. You know, they are just running against some dregs. Tim Michaels yesterday was talking about like anti-vax stuff. He started tweeting about the need, you know, oh, maybe vaccines are a problem. I mean, that's madness. You know, that's not, it's not, you know, Ron Johnson talked about, you know, mouthwash curing a deadly pandemic. I mean, these people are crazy. You know, and that's just one aspect of it. You know, it's, it's all over the place. This is scary. So, yes, is it the most important election of our lifetime? It is. If Tony Evers loses, if Josh Call loses, you know, our, our, our state is in real trouble because they are going to attack the right to vote. They are going to rig elections to permanently try and create a Republican supermajority for the end of time till Mm. both you and I are old or in my case older (laughs) well thank you I think we'll end it there on that very profound note thank you so much for joining me today Scott and sorry we didn't get to talk about your best friend uh, Secretary oh, of State no Doug Wafalit. <laughs> uh, mm, if you, there you go. <laughs> if you haven't made a plan to vote, uh, please uh, do so. Bring your friends and your family on the 8th uh, to the polls. In-person absentee early voting begins on the 25th, uh, and in-person absentee voting ends on the 6th. So thank you so much uh, for joining us. I will talk to you next week right here on A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition. Commandeering airways from under.